This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today, we're going to be talking about Johari Window. So spelled J-O-H-A-R-I, Window. Uh, This is a technique that helps people better understand their relationship with themselves and others. It was created in 1955 by psychologist Joseph Luft and Harrington Ingram. And it's used primarily in self-help groups, corporate settings, use it as a heuristic exercise. And Joseph and Harrington just kind of combined their first names, and that's how we got Johari. So in this, if you think about a like just draw a square, and then we're gonna divide it into four quadrants, right? A line in the middle vertically and a line in the middle horizontally. So it looks like what you we used to draw like when we were kids and we were drawing a window in a house, right? So you have these four quadrants. The four quadrants are the open, the blind, the unknown, and the closed. So I use this a lot of times and I'll talk with clients sometimes at the beginning of of therapy and just say like, this is the purpose of therapy, right? So you're coming in with some open information. This quadrant talks about like things that are known to you and others know them, right? It's out in the open, everybody can see it and you're aware of it. In the blind category or in the blind quadrant, this is stuff that you're blind to so you're not aware of it, but others see it. You know, they may or may not know exactly what it means about you, but they may see it and you don't know that it's there and you don't know that others are picking up on it. Then we have the unknown quadrant. In this quadrant, the information is unknown to you as a person. It's also unknown to people that you interact with. And then in the last quadrant, we have the closed quadrant, right? So this is information that is known to you, but you keep it hidden or you, it's kind of a facade. You don't let other people see it, but you are aware of it. So in therapy, a lot of times what we're trying to do, right, is we're getting you the information from the blind category into the open, right, so that you have information. And and this can be done, you know, sometimes in a therapy session one-on-one where the therapist is asking questions uh, that might bring that blind information into the open category. Also, sometimes the therapist may be saying, like, this is what's going on for me as you're talking about this. I wonder what that is symbolic of, or I wonder what's going on for you, right? So this is a way of bringing blind information into the open. We can also you know, ask people that we're in relationships with, coworkers, friends, partners, family members, whatever that looks like, right? We can ask them information about what they see. And in a therapeutic session, right, sometimes this is difficult information to know that other people see this about you. And so we kind of hold that information and use it in a way that doesn't tip us over into a shame spiral. Then we're also going to try to shrink that unknown quadrant, right? So that the information that is unknown to you and maybe unknown to others, we start to uh, expand that so that that's more in the open and we have an idea of what's unknown. And then in the closed, right, that's the category that we know about ourselves, but other people don't know that about ourselves and we hide that from them, right? So this is where we maybe. Uh, manage our self-image or create a facade or a mask that other people 
don't see, but we're aware of it. And so in that category, we're also, again, bringing some of that into the open and becoming comfortable, right? With others seeing us, knowing us. Now, in all of the illustrations, if you were to Google Johari window, you would see that all of the quadrants are equal. And I'll often talk with clients about how that's to help us get to know what the Johari window is about, right? But in a lot of relationships in our lives, those quadrants aren't going to be equal, right? We need to have some people in which the open quadrant is taking up most of the portion of this window pane, right? So the open quadrant is very much expanded and the other quadrants are very small. With other people though, maybe it is uh, good to have the closed quadrant somewhat larger, right? This would be a healthy boundary that says, you don't get to know this information about me, but it's not across the board, right? I don't keep the information closed across the board. And then again, I'm gonna have to have a pretty good awareness so that the blind spots are shrunk. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I still might have blind spots, but I'm able to deal with that. Like if somebody were to give me feedback about something from the blind quadrant, it's not going to take me out, right? I'm, I'm able to receive that information, consider it, and not become small or not become angry about that information being given to me. And then again, we, you know, we want to shrink that unknown quadrant so that you have that information about yourself. So let's talk about kind of why self-awareness is good. Sometimes, you know, in therapy, we have this term that we talk about, and this is used, I think also I've heard clients in 12-step meetings talk about it too, where we'll talk about you don't know what you don't know, right? And, and that's true. I mean, I think for a lot of people when they're coming into therapy, they don't know what they don't know. And that can be some of the scary part about starting therapy is there's kind of this sense of like stuff might be opened up or stuff might be talked about that I can't quite contain anymore or I can't control how that process goes. Hopefully you have a good therapist that you have a connection with and so there's some trust established in that therapeutic relationship and so that process doesn't get out of hand, right? Or go at a pace that you can't keep up with. But I think the Johari window is helpful, you know, just in developing more openness with ourselves and with others. So let's talk a little bit about how can self-awareness be improved, right? So I think we have to be able to look at ourselves objectively. And if a lot of this information is blind or in the unknown quadrants, or even if we're keeping a lot of information in the closed quadrant, it's going to limit our ability to be objective with ourselves, right? It's going to limit our ability to look at something with another person objectively because this information in the other quadrants that isn't in the open is going to be active, but we may not understand how it's impacting and affecting uh, what we're looking at or the relationship that we're in. One of the things that I tell clients that's really helpful is keep a journal. When I was young, right, I was an avid journal keeper. I wrote a lot of stuff down and I really do believe it was a way for me uh, to kind of process what was going on in my family. I said before on the podcast, there was a lot of uh, chaos and conflict and things that were happening in my family that we all knew. I don't even know that it was spoken to us 
Maybe it was, but it was more on a, like, I just knew that I had to keep the image of the family. And so I couldn't talk to people about what was going on. I really even didn't share it with friends that I had. And so my journal was a way that I could, that I could write about this. And I know I look back at that and there was some processing happening for me as I journaled. Now there's also, when I've, I've gone back and looked at some of those journals and I can see that things that I was journaling about, I was also pretty careful not to be too direct or not to really even write about what was happening specifically, right? So I would talk about it in vague ways. And I think I did that somewhat mindfully, like somewhat like, you know, if my parents ever read my journals, I didn't want to get in trouble for you know, kind of documenting what was going on in our family. Or if another person read the journal, right? I I just didn't want to expose that secret. So I think keeping a journal can be helpful. I think it's therapeutic. I think it can be a way where information kind of maybe from the subconscious comes into the conscious and things come up. I have a lot of clients who, you know, maybe they've kept a journal during therapy and they're a year or a year and a half, two years, sometimes longer than that. And they come in and they're like, I, I was reading this journal from however long ago and look at what I wrote. Like, And maybe now where they are currently, they have an understanding that they didn't when they were writing it, right? But they could see kind of this information trying to come into the open, trying to come into the conscious. I also, because I know journaling can be pretty uh, overwhelming for people sometimes. I think there's a lot of good, like you can Google journal prompts about like what to journal, right? You could do that. I also tell clients like, I think it's helpful to just set a timer, right? And you're just going to journal for 20 minutes and you're done when the timer goes off and it's 20 minutes and then you just kind of close it. You don't have to think about it. Uh, but you are going to do that, you know, on a regular basis, every day, every other day, something like that, where you're just free writing, right? And just see what comes out. I've had a lot of clients who are surprised at what eventually comes out, right? They start the process and sometimes it's like, I don't know what I'm writing about. My mind's blank. I have nothing to say. That's fine. Just keep doing that, right? If that's what happens, great. If you stick with the process though, uh, the clients that I've recommended it for have always eventually gotten to a place where this was very helpful for them. I think it's good to, you know, just kind of perform daily self-reflection. This may also be part of what you do in your journal. Maybe you do write down kind of reflecting at the end of the day, what happened, what were the emotions, uh, what came up for you, what does it remind you of, what triggers are there, whatever that looks like, right? And maybe you don't journal it, but I think it's good to sit down and kind of reflect on the day and kind of summarize what what came up that day, what happened that day. If you're working a 10th step, right, this fits well in with sitting down and looking at, did any of my character defects come up today? What happened today? What were the emotions? And writing that down because over time, if you have that, you will start seeing patterns. You will start having more awareness about what's going on with you. I think it's also important to practice meditation and mindfulness habits. Those are things that, again, are going to slow down the brain so that it creates a safe place for information to come up. And, you know, you can take personality and psychometric tests. These are usually online for free. I take a lot of, I was talking with my husband. He recently did 
uh, some training at work in which they had some people come in. I'm not sure what tests they had them do, but it was, you know, the, the group would give feedback to other people. Uh, the results he got didn't quite match what he expected that he would get. As we were talking about it, I mean, some of some of the feedback he got was what he was expecting, but there were a few things that he that caught him off guard. And I told him, I said, you know, this is why I take Facebook tests. Like, I mean, they're they're funny, right? Like what 80s movie character are you? Or if you were a dog, what did you look like, right? I mean, some of those, I just think they're funny and I like seeing what comes up. Um, but there's others, you know, that talk about what's your personality, what's this? I wouldn't take him too seriously. I don't take him too seriously. But it is kind of funny to see just kind of based on your profile or based on how you answer seemingly insignificant questions, uh, what comes back about you. I think you can also ask trusted friends to describe you. If you Google uh, Johari window test, I think is what comes up. Uh, there's certain adjectives, right, that they've kind of like universalized that would describe people. And you can send an email to some of your friends, maybe some of your coworkers, whoever you decide, I think you get to send it to like five or six people. And then they pick the adjectives that they think describe you the most. And then that comes back to you. And you will see kind of how other people describe you, how you maybe describe yourself. It's an interesting tool to kind of get some feedback back about yourself. And that one isn't too, it's not too invasive, right? Like, I mean, they're, they're just adjectives. And so it might be easier to start there than starting with like a conversation in which somebody gives you feedback about yourself. When I was talking about how in therapy we talk about you don't know what you don't know and that the goal of therapy is to bring the unknown into the known and to have an awareness around that. I also will talk with clients and I think I did a podcast episode on this uh, just kind of more personal about me and my family situation. Because I also find with so many clients that before we get to knowing what we don't know, I think we have to spend some time knowing what you do know, but you couldn't know. And, you know, that happened for me. I find that happening with a lot of uh, clients that I work with where there is information that they, they are aware of. They know, but the information maybe happened when they were younger or smaller in which they couldn't really do anything about it or they still had it didn't fit kind of the image that the family was going with and wanted to portray to other people and so they had this information on one level level or another and maybe just kind of put it in the unknown even though it is known to them, right? And so that's also part of the process of therapy is we're looking at what couldn't you know, but you do know. And let's examine that. Let's talk about what that was, why you couldn't know it, uh, what it was, what the impact was on you, all of that kind of stuff. So we're really bringing it into the open. And I think that opens it up more so that when we're going into the what don't I know, and I don't know that I don't know this. It's a little bit easier when we first looked at what couldn't I know, but I actually do know. So an example of this, I was working with a client um, who came in mostly for to work on relationship issues. And he had been in recovery, AA and um, drug addiction recovery. He had been in recovery a long time, had like maybe 
eight years or so like like that and had had some good success and was working a recovery program and uh, his life was improving, right? But he hadn't gotten into relationships that were healthy relationships or relationships that he really wanted to be in. And so we were examining some of this, right? And as he was kind of talking about his family of origin, different things that were going on, I asked him a question. I said, do you think your mom is an alcoholic? And he said to me, well, who am I to know that? I don't know. I, I mean, who am I to judge, right? And I said to him, well, you're a recovering alcoholic. I think you would know if somebody close in your family has a drinking problem or is an alcoholic, right? So that's an example of things that we know, but we can't know for one reason or another, we couldn't know the information. And so it's sitting out there and it really doesn't have a place or a channel to go down that can be helpful for us. However, it is still impacting us. It still gets activated. And so we also have to start looking at like, what, what do I know that I don't know? We have a, in if, like if clients register to become a patient of our clinic, right? Uh, our online system sends out kind of a questionnaire, asks them some questions just to kind of get to know them. And then that information goes to their therapist and they have that before their first session. And it's always uh, interesting, I'll say, to look at that. You know, oftentimes it'll say things like good grades, happy childhood. And so they're clicking those boxes, right? They're checking the boxes that are describing that. And yet then when it gives them information to maybe expand a little bit, kind of the right in information, there's a lot of information that completely contradicts, right? Like, no, this isn't a happy childhood. Like maybe you got good grades, but that's, you know, I mean, good for you, despite everything going on, you got good grades. And so the information just doesn't quite add up, right? That what they're clicking on and how they're describing things on one level, you know, when they're just checking boxes completely contradicts what's happening when they're writing it in, right? So there's this information that they know, but they don't necessarily know it. And you can see even on the, you know, the sheet that we get as a therapist that, there's some messiness to this. So I think just talking about, you know, Johari window, how it's important. I think it's important to look at uh, these categories. All of these things are also going to increase our emotional intelligence. So we've done, I think back when John uh, was doing the podcast with me, we did an episode on emotional intelligence. And my personal belief is I don't think we can talk about this enough. And I really think we need to start much younger teaching kids emotional intelligence. So how would Johari's window help impact emotional intelligence and increase emotional intelligence, right? I think when we have information that's either blind or unknown, or it's in the closed category, um, it's going to impact how assertive we can be in our communication, right? Because even if we don't know stuff, I think there's a sense when I talk to clients often, there's a sense that they know they don't know stuff, right? So if I say something like, well, we don't know what we don't know, they oftentimes they'll connect with that statement and they may be like, yes, but I'm not sure what that means, right? So it's kind of, again, in this subconscious or unconscious, and yet the conscious kind of has a, a felt sense for it. 
So I think when we increase our emotional intelligence, we can also utilize a more assertive way of communicating that actually works for us. I think also if we increase emotional intelligence, right, it gives us a better chance to respond instead of reacting to what happens to us, right? And and reacting often does feel out of control. We feel powerless when we're in a place of just reacting instead of being able to kind of consider, to have kind of this awareness of maybe what my own like what my own default settings are and why they're that way. And to be able to kind of, I I often talk about like, you may have an initial reaction based on default settings that got set in childhood, right? and, And that were influenced by things that happened that you didn't have control over. However, as an adult, if we have that emotional intelligence, we can have a second response pretty quickly after our first response that's actually more of a response instead of a reaction. I think also uh, when we increase our emotional intelligence, we can utilize more active listening skills, right? Because we're not getting in the way of listening to another person, right? So if I have things in the unknown category, if there's things in the blind category, and I'm trying to keep things closed so that people don't see these things, that's a lot going on. And that's going to be hard for me to actually listen to what's happening and not react to it, right? And not put myself in the middle of it because I'm actively trying to keep things in the unknown. You know, hopefully they don't see things that I don't see and hopefully I can close some information so that they're not aware. Um, I think it's also uh, ways that we can practice kind of this positive attitude, right? Or motivate ourselves where when we have good self-awareness, right? When we, and that self-awareness has transferred into emotional intelligence, I think it's easier to affirm ourselves and not just affirm ourselves because of our strengths, but also to affirm ourselves uh, in our struggles, in the challenges that we face, right? To show some self-empathy and compassion for what we're accomplishing and what we're working through and and maybe, you know, kind of the multiple, layers that have impacted us over the years. Um, I think it also, if we have emotional intelligence, if we've opened the open quadrant, we can take critique pretty well, right? If, If people are giving us feedback, even if it's difficult feedback, we can take it and we We have a process in which I can analyze and assess the feedback and the critique that I got and be able to kind of understand it, be able to identify where it came from, be able to kind of have a conversation with myself in which I'm deciding, what do I want to do with this, right? How how would using this information that I got, it's just feedback, right? Feedback is just feedback. Sometimes feedback is not delivered very well, but still just feedback what do I want to do with this? Like, what is the truth of that, right? Because sometimes there are people who see certain parts of us and they make an assumption about that, right? That would be in our blind quadrant. They're seeing things about us, but they're making conclusions. They're they're coming to conclusions or they're making assumptions about that. And it might be more based on them and what they're blind to or what is unknown to them. Right. And so, again, feedback's feedback. They may say those things about us and we have to be able to consider that and say, okay, you know, I, I tell the story sometimes I, with my mom, uh, my mom used to tell me often that I didn't apologize. And 
there was some truth to that when I was growing up. Now, part of that also, right? I, I was pretty cautious in acting because I never wanted to be wrong. In my family, you know, if you were wrong, it wasn't really safe to be wrong, right? Like making a mistake was not just something that like kids did, right? Or people do because we're human and we're not perfect. And and so if you make a mistake, that's okay. Like, let's talk about that. Let's let's come back from that, right? In, in my family, if you made a mistake and it negatively impacted something, you were going to hear about it and you were going to hear about it for a couple of hours, right? And you just kind of had to endure that. And it was also, I mean, my mom wasn't, you know, my mom wasn't unintelligent. She was an intelligent person. You know, she had her bachelor's degree. She was a school teacher. And so you really kind of had to not just say the words and say, I'm sorry, da, 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 whatever you would say, right? You would have to convince her that you also felt what you were saying. And so that could also prolong the you know, the time spent talking to you or lecturing because, you know, convincing someone that you actually feel it can, can be difficult. And, and I mean, you don't have control over whether or not they're going to believe you. Right. And so it wasn't happening up front. Like I, I just think my mom thought if you apologize too quickly, uh, you must not be feeling it. And so the other thing that I think sometimes is, you know, if you were, if you were in the wrong, you had to apologize a hundred percent, right? Now I have no problem with like, I have to own a hundred percent of what is mine. Absolutely. And another person has to own a hundred percent of what is theirs. Totally agree with that. But in my family, particularly with my mom, I had to own a hundred percent and my mom was going to own zero percent. And we would argue or go back and forth and kind of negotiate that until I could convince her that I truly believed I owned 100% and she truly owned 0%, which as a teenager, you can imagine, I never actually believed that. So I would, you know, just make sure like, I don't, I don't want to get into those hour long lectures and waste so much time. And so I just was really cautious about what I did. I had a lot of information that wasn't in the open that I kept closed um, just because I didn't want to have conversations about it. And I didn't want that to have the potential to go that way. And so when I was first dating my husband, I let me back up. I knew my husband a long time before we ever dated. And so we were friends, trying to think three or four years before we dated. Now, if my husband was here, he would say, you know, that actually he wanted to date me at the first, right? But he also could sense from me, this was some information that maybe was blind to me, but he, he knew, right, that if he had indicated that he was interested in more than friendship, he would be out. And that was true for who I was at the time. And so he was kind of like, hey, I'm just going to fly low. I'm going to be low on the radar so that I can kind of hang out with her, right? And so as we got into a relationship, one of the things that I noticed with him, right, because I, I've said before, in the family that you're born into, they have the ability to make what is normal, normal, right? So this situation with apologizing to me seemed like that's what happened. But there were incidences, right, because I'm not a perfect person in which I might do things to my husband, who was at the time my friend, he might do things, right? And he just, he was 
one of the things I really that stood out to me that I that I saw very quickly when I was getting to know him is that he was quick to apologize and move on. Like you say you're sorry. I, I felt he meant it, right? And then it was done. And I was kind of like, wait a minute, we don't have another three hours in which this has to be drug out. And so I started kind of testing that with different people and being able to just say, hey, sorry, this came across wrong and I'm sure that that didn't sound well. It probably didn't feel good to you. I apologize. And I started seeing how some people would just be like, oh yeah, no problem. Like, thanks for apologizing, right? They appreciated my response, but that was the end of it. And I was probably 10 years married and uh, had this conversation with my mom on the phone. And it, it was not a conversation, sorry. It was an argument on the phone with my mom. And, you know, again, it, it had gone to this like, Jackie, you never apologize. And I didn't say this. I'm wise enough not to say that because that would have been another two hours on the phone. But I just, in my head, said to myself, not to you. Like, I don't apologize to you. And I tried not to get into anything in which I would have to apologize to my mom because it was such an uncomfortable process. But actually, I had really gotten good at taking responsibility for my missteps and for negative impact or just impact that I didn't want to have on people. I had actually gotten pretty good at doing that with everybody but my mom. And I had just kind of gotten to this place with my mom in which we just didn't talk about much, right? We talked about books that we were reading um, because we both enjoyed that. We talked about sometimes recipes, right? Like that could also kind of get us into some trouble because, you know, my mom would say that I didn't appreciate her cooking, which was true. I didn't really think my mom was a good cook. And, And the reality is my mom didn't like to cook. Right, And if you don't like to cook, you tend to not be a good cook. But I could not say that to my mom. And my mom was not, like she wasn't okay just owning the fact that she didn't like to cook and she wasn't that great of a cook. So there was just some information in which that impacted the relationship we had because I couldn't be open with her. She couldn't be open with herself. It was, you know, I there were areas in which I just wasn't willing to go with her. I wasn't willing anymore to take 100% responsibility and I couldn't open that up to her. So I would say a lot of our relationship was somewhat closed and that meant it was safe, but it also kept it pretty small. So I think this is an important thing for people to look at in terms of, you know, there may be relationships in which you can't be super open with them, right? Some of the information isn't safe for them to see about you. There's also some in which you have information and you'd love to give it to them in a kind and appropriate way, but that's not going to happen because they're not open to receiving it. And I think being aware of this, again, this goes back to emotional intelligence. How do I have to be in this relationship and how do others have to be with me in a relationship can start to explain why some of our relationships aren't working. It can start to explain why certain relationships maybe give us that pit in the stomach instead of a good feeling. And then we have some decision-making to do, right? We have some further analyzing to do to decide how, you know, maybe I can't just not have this relationship, but it can give us more of a indication of how I need to be in this relationship so that I don't keep getting hurt or they don't keep getting hurt 
And we can find kind of that ground in which, okay, this is where we can operate. This is where it can be. Um, and, and then maybe there's some grief that goes on that just says, I want this relationship to be more than it is. And it's not going to be. And when I try to make it more than it is, I get hurt. I get sad and it causes damage to the relationship, right? So I may have to grieve that in therapy. I may have to grieve that with people who I can have those relationships with, but to keep trying to push it or force it in this relationship is only going to do damage. So I think that's a good thing. The last thing I would talk about with how uh, Johari's window can help increase emotional intelligence is it allows us to empathize with others, right? It allows us to have empathy and compassion, like I was saying, for ourselves, but then it also allows us to empathize with others and maybe understand, you know, that much of their life, it wasn't safe for the open quadrant to be open, right? And we understand that process because we've gone through that. We know that it's scary. We know that it's painful. We know that it's hard. And so I can hold back judgment about why somebody else wouldn't do that, even though that's a process maybe that I've gone through, right? And I can just have some empathy and some acceptance for where people are and why they're there. So I hope that you get something out of this. I would encourage you to go online, look at uh, Google Johari's window, again, spelled J-O-H-A-R-I. Maybe take the test, send some information to the people you know. It, it'll automatically help you set it up if you know their email address you can send it to them um, and have some fun with it you know maybe some of your friends who aren't aware of this also do it back with you and it can lead to some great discussions that actually open that quadrant even more and can create more connection and more bonding in the relationships that that can happen with so i would say have fun with this play with this and just know that that is part of what's happening in therapy, right? We're, we're shifting those quadrants around all in an effort to help us have more intelligence, to help us have better relationships and so that we have a more meaningful life. So thanks for listening. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen. <laughs>